The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Waves for Thursday, October 4th, the Rage at Brett edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the Brooklyn studios, we have Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Did you note that I changed it to Brooklyn? That was a nice little artisanal touch you gave us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and our very special guest, Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's legal correspondent. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Noreen. Hi. What a treat. <laughs> I'm in Brooklyn, too. We're like wearing plaid. <laughs> we have beards. We have yoga mats. We do. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. I've been so excited to talk to you guys since the hearings about what's been going on. Desperate. I might say desperate. Uh, which means in our show today is an all Kavanaugh week. Um, we'll start with a fast newsy update about the FBI investigation. And um, it occurred to me that we're then splitting the show into genders, like we're doing Kavanaugh as kind of the living embodiment of the patriarchy and how fair that character is, and then women's fury and the role it plays or should play in politics. And then, Noreen, do you want to say what our Slate Plus segment is? Yes, we are talking about whether it is sexist that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the socialist candidate from New York um, is being dinged for wearing expensive clothing in a photo shoot. Yeah. Okay. A lot to say on that. All right. Let's jump into the FBI update. Dolly, I'm so glad to have you here for this. Um, as we speak, and I will tell you, listeners, we record on Wednesdays. So this is a fast moving story. Things could change. The FBI has been given license to investigate the allegations of sexual misconduct against Supreme Court nominee Pratt Kavanaugh. <laughs> Okay. I have to say, Dahlia, I'm a little confused even about basic things like the scope. I realize it's only a week, but I feel like every day we get different news about whether the scope is limited or unlimited. And what I'm curious about is, is the only way to know the truth are these sort of trickling news stories that say the FBI didn't contact me or return my call? Is that where the truth lies? It's it, it, you're right to be confused, Hannah, and I don't even know if all the trickling news stories are true because we're hearing right. Don McGahn is saying one thing on behalf of White House Counsel's Office, then Donald Trump is saying other things. Uh, Grassley is saying, you know, Mitch McConnell and Grassley are saying, "My God, it's done. It's done Wednesday. It's done. Too. It was done before we started." And then uh, we have, uh, you know, news breaking news last night. I guess I should say breaking news late Tuesday night, saying, "Oh no, actually." They've gone beyond the scope of the four original folks they were going to contact. And now they're talking to Squee and Timmy. And I think Squee is Timmy and Tobin's dad. And they're talking to. <laughs> so I, I think part of the frustration and, and, and in a sense, it's a media problem because you do have, you know, the Times and the Post reporting either credulously or accurately that the scope is widening. Uh, but I think that there's also a, a strain of this that is it's done already. They, they, their mandate was to talk to these four people. They talked to them and now, you know, they're chatting a little with, uh, you know, some of the folks who are at the party. I think what we know for sure as best as I Wait, can. Wait, what do you mean chatting a little? Like what? How do, <laughs> we what, just don't like know. Like the FBI doesn't. They're, they're uh -huh. giving, they're, they are certainly uh, have been statements that have come out uh, since Tuesday night that say that. Some of the people who were named uh, by uh, Dr. Blasey Ford in her testimony were 
interviewed now. Uh, I think that uh, Debbie Ramirez, we know, was interviewed on Sunday. We also know... And just to remind people, she's the Yale dorm room person. She's unconnected to the Christine Blasey Ford case. Correct. She's the Yale accuser. She gave the FBI on Sunday a two-hour interview. Her lawyer said it was very in-depth. She also handed over 20 names. She said these people all have... Uh, material uh, testimony. None of them, as far as I can tell, were contacted. Uh, And then you're right. We have the drip drip of folks at Yale coming forward and saying, uh, I have things I want to say. I'm like hurling myself against the door of my local FBI office and leaving a chain of ranting voicemails and nobody's contacting me. So I think so this is a problem of people being overly sophisticated who are involved in this story. Like maybe the reason this is happening is because all of his friends and people he's run into in his life know how to contact the FBI and call The Washington Post and The New York Times. So it's much more chaotic than it would otherwise be. Yeah, there's a little I was just telling Noreen there's a strange quality where they all went to Yale. They all have a dad who's a federal judge. You know, they're all like, dude, I called my 17 lawyers and I'm waiting. Uh, This is not the same as, you know, what we're seeing happen in the like sideshow that's happening with um, Michael Avenatti. You know, there's a real class differential here. And people who went to Yale with Brett Kavanaugh largely have been very, very able to speak to the press, to make their stories known, uh, to find channels to talk to the FBI. But I think just as to your initial question, maybe the real answer is that uh, the White House is riding two horses, right? They're trying to mollify Jeff Flake and Susan Collins, and they're trying to say, no, no, we're having a real investigation. We're doing this. And us. And us. And everybody. And and Dianne Feinstein and Chris Coons. And they're trying to say, no, no, this is a serious investigation. This is what you asked for. But you're also getting Lindsey Graham saying, we're we're putting him up again. Even if he gets voted down, we're renominating him. So I think as long as you've got these two messages, which is there's nothing to see here, folks. And also there's nothing to see here, folks, but we're investigating diligently. You're going to get these cross winds of how this is going. Do you in your soul have faith in this process? Like, do you what are I hate when people ask questions like this, but I'm going to do it anyway. But you have some legal expertise in in, you know, how these investigations go down. Is there like what percent chance is there that at the end of this will have some clarity over these wildly conflicting accounts of what happened? Like, is there any not about his character? We will get to that in a minute, but about actually what happened, that it might be like, oh, well, we've got these, you know, because the other thing you have is that FBI investigator uh, the Rachel Mitchell report um, saying essentially this is a really weak case. Like like speaking in legal terms, this is not a case. This is too weak a case to bring to trial. There's no eyewitnesses. Like they're just, not that it's not true, but just that there isn't enough evidence to corroborate her story. Um, so is there any chance that that will shift? Well, I'm 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 no legal expert, but it's not a trial, right? Like that's right. that's the whole thing here. Is this is a job interview, not a trial. And just, I mean, I'm going to let Dahlia talk because she actually knows what she's talking about. But, but Rachel, the Rachel Mitchell letter, uh, someone who worked for Rachel Mitchell, I believe, came forward and said, you know, this is full of things she taught me to discount. These are the things that are used against victims. And like Rachel Mitchell in her real job, like, was training people not to pay attention to these things that she is in a partisan fashion, like just using as a cudgel in this letter. 
Uh, that that too. And also, I think I've seen ethics experts coming forward and saying now, like it was wildly inappropriate for her to do a quarter of her investigation. She didn't even get to question mm-hmm. uh, Brett Kavanaugh and then to start making conclusory statements about the, the strength of the case. I think Noreen makes the most important point, which is are, what are we investigating? Are we investigating for some quantum of criminal evidence of uh, you know guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? I thought we were investigating the things we should have been investigating before this hearing, which is uh, what did he do uh, and and who saw what and what do we know? And more pointedly, I think there's a really pressing question beyond just are we half investigating criminal allegations? And that's one question. And, and, and what amount of evidence would suffice for that? And then I think there's this larger question, which is, are we investigating the fact that somebody perjured themselves under oath? Because if we believe, and I think we have at least some cause to believe, uh, that Brett Kavanaugh was not truthful last week on Thursday about a lot of things, then is that also within the purview of what the FBI is supposed to be doing. And I know that's a really hard question to parse because I think it's true for certain that he was not in any way honest about what those yearbook entries said and what, uh, you know, how Renato was treated and some of those claims. But I think that there's reason to believe he wasn't truthful about other things, including, you know, Manny Miranda leaked documents in his testimony before the Senate as at his first confirmation hearing. So it's it's very, very confusing now that we've got what is being portrayed as a he said, she said, right? We didn't have any corroborating witnesses. We don't know anything. But we have these two stories, and now we're investigating what about them? Wait, Dahlia, can I just ask you a question about perjury and its definition? Is there like a level of lie that it must rise to? Like, I've heard people say, oh, he was being so Clintonian in his answers, like, ironically enough, given his role in the Star investigation. And and then there's also this whole strain of conservative thought, which is that it was OK for him to perjure a little bit because he was so angry. Um, which is, which we can get to the anger in a second, but like, you know, obviously lying about, uh, or, or dissembling, let's say about, you know, leaked memos or, or what you participated in, in the Bush White House is different than not giving a full definition of the devil's triangle as it is known to you. So like, can you, can you be, can you perjure yourself with your knowledge of the devil's triangle, I, you know it's it's such a good question. I've seen the same um, argument playing out, you know, in the legal blogosphere. Is does that any of this rise to perjury mm-hmm. that we would call serious? I mean, the definition of perjury is you know violating an oath or a vow, um, and 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 you can also do it by omission, uh, mm-hmm. by not uh, saying <laughs> something. So you know, I think it, there is this question about is there you know one thing that is perjury about. Your your doctrinal history, right? When you talk about like all roads lead to Glucksburg, like maybe that isn't truthful testimony about you know what the 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 case law says. And then there's this question of is he lying about dumb stuff like how many brewskis he had at Squeeze House? And and you're right, I think it's really hard to map that onto you know a legal definition of what we would call perjury. And I think again, it goes to the problem of we have this quasi criminal quasi-job interview, theater of the absurd thing that doesn't really pick a lane at any point. It didn't last week. It's not now. And so I think when you sort of – I'm finding I, – I wanted to ask you guys this. Like the, the, the talk of gang rape, right, mm-hmm. when Lindsey Graham is screaming at him, are you a gang rapist? As though that's 
a thing and we all agree what that thing is. And even Trump, I think, yesterday was talking about gang rape as though we all agree on, you know, whether what he and Mark Judge allegedly did and whether that's gang rape. And so I'm, I think I'm finding the, the importing of these legal words into something that is clearly not a legal proceeding or even a quasi-legal proceeding is just because it's really easy, I think, for men to say whatever it is that he's accused of, gang rape is not appropriate. So are you a gang rapist? Asked and answered. You know, it doesn't get you where you want to go. Well, you said political theater. That feels like what it is to me. Like, I felt like I was watching The Crucible when I watched, you know, the first half of of those hearings and then the second half was I don't know like 12 angry men or something like it was just like it it, it has been theater and now it's like a high school drama playing out like a really dark high school drama with high stakes but I, I just don't think that anything about I mean I'm also someone who doesn't spend a lot of time watching C-SPAN so I was just sort of shocked by I was just sort of shocked by the whole proceeding and how much it was um, playing to the base right like that's just what this whole thing is. The Republicans are playing to the base, um, which is essentially men at this point. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, so let's just move on to our next conversation, which is Kavanaugh as the patriarchy. Uh, in the in the week since the hearing, I think you guys will agree with this. It's the Democrats have started to focus not on high school Kavanaugh, but Kavanaugh 2018. What you just said, Dahlia, and so have a lot, at least. Women that I know. I know that's not the entire world, but women that I know. Uh, and 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 guys, I will say, like, I need you to restrain me on this topic because because um, no, I'm not in um, the mood <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I'm feeling like I'm going to be just like un like the conversation has become so strange. I've watched women around me who are generally not politicized get pretty politicized, you know, and start to make kind of broad sweep stereotypes. I've even done it with my own husband, like noticed in Kavanaugh some kind of essence of ugly maleness, you know, that not just like at first it was just he's a prep school brat, like you wrote in your article, Noreen, he's such a brat, which listeners, if you haven't read it, it's a fabulous, hilarious story that Noreen wrote, which is like prep school brat who's entitled, who seems wholly unfamiliar with the experience of not getting what he wants. Like, that's just shocking to him that the thing that he wanted, he's not going to get. I mean, he just finds that to be an outrage and, you know, brazenly partisan. And and then it just kind of curdled and became more broadly like ugly maleness. And I'm not sure if that expansion is fair. So I think I need your guys's help. We can start with a limited topic, which is, you know, it really is splitting women opposing his confirmation and men supporting it, although it's only 55 percent of women who oppose his confirmation, which is a little shocking, but still. Um, so there is this sort of gender, there is that way in which men are thinking, oh, Lindsey Graham said what I was thinking. You know, this is completely unfair. Um, and maybe I need to ask you guys, have you had the same experience as what I'm saying familiar to you? that sort of expansion into male qualities, you know? Yeah, I'm I'm still stuck in the fact that 50, only 55% of women oppose this. <laughs> I, it just feels like um, people are seeing this whole 
other thing than I was seeing. Like I recoiled at every word that he said and not and not simply at the moment in the moment. Yes. When he came on. Did you watch in real time when he came on after like hours of watching Christine Glavazzi Ford be so careful and afraid and then he came on yelling I, just like every uh, yes I felt the sort of entitlement in every word that he said um and that's had- interesting it took me a while because oh. at first what happened is I was slapped in the face by his utter denial like his utter denial was so strong that at first my brain was just kind of reeling around the facts like like how can you have these two like wildly opposing conflicting stories each one seems so completely convincing that I got kind of stuck on the actual investigation and then it took me a few days to just kind of sink into all the other things that he was saying well I think I had a reaction in the moment which is what I wrote about, which is just like how stuck in high school he was. And he was performing this like particularly jerky version of the American high school male. Right. But he he didn't like many people in that situation might have been a little embarrassed to be bringing up this kind of stuff. And he was so proud to be talking about all of it. <laughs> he was like the, the ego was insane in that room. He he could have been a lot more courteous to Christine Blasey Ford, certainly to Amy Klobuchar, like every every sort of um, unguarded moment revealed him to be just a jerk. Like, <laughs> I, I don't have another way of putting it, but like he and and he and and then the what do you mean by a jerk? Do you mean like like all that squeak like just a parody of like a high school are, are we talking like like prep school jerk? No, but, I mean, yeah, sure. In another context, right, it's pathetic for him to be like reliving the glory days. But instead, he's up there, you know, uh, going for the Supreme Court and bringing this stuff up. Um, but no, I mean the I mean the moment when he particularly the moment when Amy Klobuchar talked about how her father had a problem with alcoholism. And, you know, I think he Kavanaugh clearly felt threatened by that, that by her suggestion, perhaps that he himself had a problem with alcohol. He just likes beer. He doesn't have a problem with alcohol. He just really, really likes beer. Right. He kept saying that over and over again. She asked him about drinking to blackout. And instead of answering it, he he like like a bully, like a high school bully, he turned it around on her and said, like, do you ever get blackout? I can't I can't remember the phrasing, but it was it was literally he parried her question the way a three year old would. It was like some combination of three year old and high school boy. Like, do you ever do it? And it was just it was nasty. And he apologized because obviously someone had told him to apologize after the break. But it was like it was like you saw the real sort of uncoached Brett Kavanaugh in that moment, right? Like, which was different than he had this prepared statement that was totally unhinged where he's coming out swinging about how this is revenge for the Clintons and, and you know, <laughs> all the money that's been funneled into this from left wing groups. And so you sort of that's where you see him being like a partisan, which I would argue is incredibly inappropriate for the Supreme Court. But that is, you know, he he worked on that. He <laughs> He like thought about that. And that was the Brett Kavanaugh that he wanted to put forth, whether to impress Donald Trump or otherwise. But that was like that was his crafted version of Brett Kavanaugh. But the like nasty going back to Amy Klobuchar. And I'm sure there were other moments like that, too, which Dahlia is like ready to talk about. Um, But that was just him. That was the way he reacts when he's in a defensive crouch. And it was mean. So so I have a couple of um, thoughts. One is that I was in Dirksen when it was happening and um one of the things I think that TV distorts is you get a sense it's a really big room. 
Uh, it's not the big hearing room that we usually do these confirmation hearings in. It's a little room. And so the slamming of the binder and the smashing of the pen, um, it was really fascinating, even in the press corps, to see the women with their shoulders sort of rucked up around their ears. Like it was quite assaultive in a way that I think maybe doesn't come across on TV. Like you really felt... Um, my my 15 year old texted me. He was watching at school and he texted me and said, are you OK? Um, and I thought, that's isn't that crazy? And I was like, you know, I he's not coming after me. But I think that there was a sense in that room that this is a person who was out of control. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I think is is really important to say is, you know, I've known Brett Kavanaugh as a judge for a very long time. I've never seen Anything like that. I've been told sometimes on the basketball court, you know, but I mean, never seen anything like that. And so trying to sort of superimpose what we just saw and and also reckon with what happened on Monday on Fox News where he was doing whatever that performance was. And then also, and I think a little bit this goes to Noreen's point, not only was there like – I mean, I guess we have to talk about the crying and I don't know what to make of the crying, but the the sort of like and we were just lifting weights and doing our service projects. And I was a basketball star and I worked my butt off and got into and all that sort of folksy stuff. There was this weird and I think it was the the holdover from Monday, this sort of Norman Rockwell, like my dad would <laughs> regale us with tales from his calendar from 19. 19- 78, which was right four years before. I, I mean, it was just such a weird, like, really went to the dentist, you know, had teeth cleaned. It was such an odd, utterly inauthentic, like, it, it, it was though you couldn't decide if the anger was real, but the thing he was toggling back and forth to was so whether it was the bro stuff that Noreen is flagging, you know, all I did was lift weights and do service projects or, you know, this weird, like, I never touched a drop. I was a virgin until yesterday. You know, like some of that. He didn't say never touched a drop. He said he was a virgin until yesterday. Yeah, but I just think that there was so much about it that was so unbelievably inauthentic that you felt like, I don't know, is he like trying to win over There was a way in which like he was clearly there was an audience of one. It was Donald Trump. Deny, deny, deny. You looked weak on Monday. I want you to come out swinging. And so then there was that. But then it felt like when he dipped back into the other thing, it wasn't authentic either. It was just Mm -hmm. this kind of folksy, you know, tale of like a Catholic altar boy. And, you know, to say like, oh, no, that was a sign of affection for Renata. We all know what that was. That made me so Be honest. Be honest. But I think that there was something about the fury side by side with this like completely false story that was belied by not only everything that we've seen about him and what his friends have said about him, but also belied by the fury itself. That was just really pick a personality. Just pick one. Well, that was part of what was so alarming. I did not strike me as inauthentic. See, the way I put all that together, and this is where I came into like, all men are like this, which is really not my usual mode. But the, the thing that happened for me is I thought, oh, I understand how this works. Men, <laughs> Brett, I'll stop <laughs> saying men. <laughs> Have They have an idea about themselves, like they have an idea about themselves that they believe and they hold very strongly and they have a really, really hard time, unlike women, taking in contrasting information like he he just has a fixed idea about his drinking, about his past, about himself as a person, about his reputation, himself as a judge. 
his father, all of these things. And what was making him furious was that so many people had a, were getting a kind of different idea or the idea was being thrown on. Like he just couldn't. It was his inflexibility, which which shocked me and made me think like, this guy's going to be a Supreme Court justice. Like his total ability to take in alternate perspectives, to be self-reflective, to kind of move in the moment, um, to, to take in information that was contrary to the story that he had in his own head, which is in my mind, like that's what a judge is. And he was so completely completely unable to do that, that he just unraveled, like the smallest indication that he wasn't exactly the person who he had decided he was in his head unhinged him. And that's, you know, that's what I felt like I was watching up there. Yeah, I think that's dead right, Hannah. Can can I just say something? Can I say something in response? Because I think what you just said, Hannah, is so... Like, it just clicked something into place in my head, which is I've been thinking for, like, almost 20 years about women justices on the Supreme Court and what makes them different. And I don't want to say anything stupid and essentializing, but what I will say is that one through line I've really picked up over the years is that sense that they have to kind of glide back and forth between two worlds, between the world that they all navigated as women kind of coming up when it wasn't quite clear what that looked like success, and then this world of men. And um, I've really fixated on – I did this interview with – Justice Kagan two weeks ago, uh, like a live interview with her. And I've really fixated on one of the things she does that I find uh, like a, a writing quirk is she she writes in the second person all the time. So she writes, you think, imagine you did. What if you were in? And I, I asked her about that. And I think it really is like she's so bred in the bone, apt to think from more than one perspective. It's almost as though she has to. That muscle has been working her whole life. And I love what you're saying because I think, you know, and I think Sotomayor is another one, Justice Sotomayor, who constantly thinks, but what is it like to be, you know, she's written beautifully about what it is to be a 16-year-old boy, you know, interrogated by the police without uh, counsel or your parents there. And I'm like, she was never a 16-year-old boy interrogated. by. But I think that there is this strange way in which if you don't come up you know, certain that you belong, you're always doing this extra work of ambassadoring back and forth. And I I think it's maybe a more useful frame than the sort of bro, you know, he just wasn't this entitled jerk. I think that what you're describing is somebody who just has never, ever had to look at the world from any place other than what we did at Georgetown Prep was awesome because we were men. And, you know, to, to have that question that there were people who were hurt by that conduct and to, to be doing it publicly is really, really new for him. But that is the definition of entitlement, right? That the world that the world will sort of like wrap its way around whatever you've decided you're going to be. I mean, I keep thinking about, OK, what about an alternative universe in which Brad Kavanaugh had gotten up there and he had said, I, I did some things in high school that I thought were cool and looking at them from the perch of a 53-year-old man, I realized that maybe the scenario didn't feel the same for her as for me, right? This is the the thing that you're describing, the the ability to get in someone else's shoes, empathy, right? And he he just and and it you know, coupled with an apology, two things that he just really didn't do. Like he could have apologized without admitting to anything actually and probably won over a certain kind of woman. I don't know if that would have gotten me to like support his his judgeship, but like a certain kind of woman would have been won over. But instead, the anger seems to have been just about the best thing he could have done to rally Republican men. 
around him. And I want to talk about why that's happening, right? So I have a work friend who keeps saying, I don't get why they're so, like, even reasonable conservatives, right? Like your Ross Douthats of the world have, have been oddly partisan on this. And the obvious answer is like, oh, they care so much about abortion. That's their big issue. And like, they worry that, um, you know, that that they can't get someone else through before the composition of the Senate changes or the or of the of Congress changes, right? So that's the sort of logical answer. But there's something about this that goes beyond logic, right? The sort of tribal thing that's happening, um, where you see men on Twitter. So now there's been this news that Kavanaugh was in a bar fight um, when he was at Yale, and it was sort of like an, <laughs> a bar fight after a UB40 concert, which is like a devastating detail, I think. Um, <laughs> at Demerit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and now you see all these conservative men on Twitter saying, I've, I've been in like four bar fights in my life. I don't know any men who haven't been in a bar fight. And it's this they're they're ta- they're essentially trying to normalize this aggressive sort of masculinity, this ugly masculinity that Kavanaugh is inhabiting here. And they're trying to say, no, this is how it is. This is how men are. They're they're like doubling down on on men feeling under attack. And then you look at Donald Trump's rally last night where he's, you know, he's not just making fun of Christine Blasey Ford, which was ugly in and of itself, but he's also like doing a call out to the mothers who might be afraid of their sons being falsely attacked. So it's like men feeling under attack and Brett Kavanaugh has come to stand in for all of them, right? Like he's he's an old-fashioned man in their view and like you can't just be a man in America anymore. And then this morning I like happened to be listening to the news and they were talking about someone from the Charlottesville rally who um was indicted I believe and they and they repeated the chant that that those protesters those all right protesters said a year ago you will not replace us and that's what I keep coming back to it's this like sense of you will not replace us like and Brett Kavanaugh doesn't actually have that much in common on the surface with an all right protester in Charlottesville but it is this like you know, you, you know, Georgetown prep to Yale to Yale, you will not replace me on the Supreme Court bench. Like, I, I've been waiting my whole life to, for this. And if I don't get this, that means you, buddy, out there aren't going to get your job at whatever, you know, um, you, whatever office job you want. Like, I am a symbol for all of you. I just think he's become something even bigger than himself, even though a Supreme Court justice is a pretty big deal in and of itself. Yeah, I've been thinking about that exact thing. And I think what it has me doing is refining my end of men ideas, which is to <laughs> say, like, we're in this really, really kind of dangerous moment where there is a lot of emasculation and lack of jobs and everything I've said, but the male standard is not budging. It's like we haven't moved the ruler, even though the realities have changed a lot, the ruler is not budging an inch. Like, the ruler for women budges a lot. Like, what women can do, what's acceptable in the public sphere, how they can dress. It's, like, very fluid. Again, mm-hmm. fluidity <laughs> movement. But the male, but, but while men in reality are changing, the male standard is just, like, like fixed, fixed, fixed. And so it's like this, this gap is just getting toxic, you know? And it's 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 fixed. And I think that it's zero sum in a way that it didn't used to be. I think there's you know, what you're describing is like for every woman who gets a seat on the Supreme Court, that's a white guy who didn't get it. You know, and what's sort of roaring in the headphones is not just we are going to lose stuff, but also What's really interesting to me is there's still this trope. You really heard it from Donald Trump yesterday that, you know, women are 
when they come up with these lies, which they carefully seed six years before in therapy, you know, when, 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 because there's, that's how cunning they are, but they're always doing it to extract money. And there's this mm. weird, weird kind of trope of like, he either thinks that women leverage these claims to get famous, which is one of his things, or they leverage it to extort money. But it's such a... Or a free polygraph test. Don't or forget free, that. That's what we all want. Ding, 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 ding. And th- there's something so interesting about... I, I, I couldn't help but notice last week, and I noticed it throughout the last couple of weeks of the hearing that Judge Kavanaugh, when he talks about being a feminist, he's always talking about the women he takes under his wing. You know, he's like these girls that I coach in basketball and, you know, my daughters and these law clerks. And I would have been the first one with four law clerks. And at one level, like it's noble and it's ennobling and we should really credit, you know, men who who help lift women up. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg is always at pains to say, I have to thank all the men who came before me who, you know, gave me a shot. And so I don't want to devalue it completely. But I think just in light of what you just said, Hannah, like there's this strange lack of agency <laughs> for women, you know, like you can choose to be mentored and helped up, uh, but you can't uh, actually choose to have your own voice and speak in your own voice and and defy him. And for me, the split screen between, you know, these women who are sitting behind him and saying, but he was the best mentor and father and basketball coach. And Amy Klobuchar, who is this fully realized political actor who is an extraordinary powerhouse on the Judiciary Committee and a former prosecutor, the way he snapped back at her kind of puts the lie to this idea of feminism, right? It says, I'm a feminist insofar as I get to determine which women have worth and which women are Renata and which women are Amy Klobuchar. And I, I something about that really did curdle for me. Has he used the word feminist, though? He does. Can I just say that's exactly the story of Trump and his wives, what you just said? That's exactly the split that Trump has in his head about women. It's like they are, I love them insofar as they are, you know, as far as it's Pygmalion and I can mold them and they're doing what I say. And the second any of his wives slips through that and kind of tries to establish agency or do something different, they're dead to him. Like mm. that's the that's the story of his marriages, basically. That's totally true. But on on Kavanaugh, I mean, I don't know if we want to go here, but just to, to break off the female law clerks portion of it, there has been reporting. You know, this is this is sort of like campus novel stuff with Amy Chua and her husband out of Yale. But there was reporting that they, you know, would give I forget which half of the couple. I'm sorry, um, would give advice to to Yale undergrads who or, or to law students who are interested in clerking for him if they were women that that he preferred a certain look right model like was the, <laughs> whatever that means model like was right. was the was the report. right so sure he mentors women but it comes with a some complicated baggage there if that is to be believed which i believe it given everything that we've seen um the other thing about the trump rally i just want to talk about that for a minute I feel like there's become this narrative on the right that that women are are using um, they're using all of their anger from the past year from from Me Too and they're dumping it all on Brett Kavanaugh. But actually, what's happening is that like is this the backlash moment to Me Too? I mean, I'm sure we've had other backlash moments to Me Too, but but ha- is this the moment where like? Um, the right has found its its like uh, hero to defend, right? Like Charlie Rose wasn't a good one, you know. Like 
um, there there hasn't been a moment yet where you could sort of like solidly say this man is being victimized because of this broader hysteria that's sweeping American women. Do you think that's part of what's happening? That's a Ooh, good question. You're right. That's a, I mean, yeah, I because, right. because unlike Charlie Rose and unlike um, the other men who have been, you know, Harvey Weinstein or whoever, mm-hmm. there isn't a smoking gun here. Right. We don't have video. We don't have 62 contemporaneous witnesses. Right. We don't have, um, you know, and so and so you're able to say the entire thing. You know, what I'm seeing today is she lied about air travel. Therefore, the whole thing <laughs> right. is made up, you know. And, and so I think that you're right. There's a way in which. I've been saying since the beginning of Me Too that, you know, women women are thinking about this and reconstructing their own lives and coming forward and saying, oh, wow, what happened to me was rape or it was assault or I didn't consent. Men are reconstructing their lives and saying, what am I going to get tagged for? Mm-hmm. What And that is the anxiety that splits this country open. And I think that for women, you know, I'm sure you both have had this. I've had in the last week women who I've known for years and years saying, I have to tell you what happened to me senior year at Yale. And I never knew. They never told anyone that piece in the Washington yes, Post so much is more devastating. Than other moments. Yep. Yep. <gasps> this it's happened to me. That exact same thing has happened now. And it didn't happen before. Like it didn't happen in the other moments, not Harvey Weinstein or anything else. Like this was the thing. That is interesting. For me, it was yeah. the Harvey Mo- Weinstein moment. That's when all of my friends sort of sat down and had a collective reimagining. I wonder, I wonder why that is. Yeah. But it is, you're right, Dolly, he's just clean enough to be like a hero in this moment. You know, he's he's totally defensible. And and then there's something about his sort of preppy jerkiness, which 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 makes women bristle. They, they feel like you can make fun of Charlie Rose or all these other guys. But something about him is just real enough to women that in on my end that it, bring, it brought out the stories, you know. OK, let's move on to actually talk about the women and fury. In the Brett Kavanaugh moment, I feel like we have two opposite examples of female anger and its utility in the public space. First is Christine Blasey Ford. She was helpful, full of goodwill, totally restrained. And that was totally effective in coming across as credible and probably critical in coming across as credible. And then the two sexual assault victims who pinned Jeff Flake in the elevator in exactly the opposite mode, absolutely filling the elevator their rage and demanding he look at them and see their rage. And that was also very effective uh, and credible. So we are going to talk about female rage acceptability when it works, when it doesn't, and why. Maybe we'll start with the elevator example. What did you guys think of that? Like, did you think that what had you ever seen rage used that way that effectively? Uh, did you think it was a good moment? Well, you've definitely seen screaming protesters, right? But I think there was something about the like closed space where Jeff Flake had to look at he had to look at these women, you know, and he had to hear them. Right. He couldn't just walk by the protest and dismiss it as like just lefty activists with some dumb signs like with their pussy hats on. These were women confronting him and and like confronting him personally right one of them i believe said you know you're a father and it's kind of a trope on the feminist internet to be annoyed when men sort of tie their feminism or their newfound like understanding of how hard life is for women to their fatherhood but i think sometimes like that is what it takes for for men to be able to think about it that way and in this case i think actually probably reminding jeff flake that he has a young daughter and like this is what the world is like 
was a smart move, right? Like it was it was putting it in terms well, of I'm a little curious about why it worked though. Like it was it worked, so it was a smart move, but it usually doesn't work. Like when when do female when do two women screaming at a man about their bodies in an elevator? Like I don't totally understand why it was so great and effective. I mean, it was great and effective, but like it's it's it to me it was like a small miracle that that all happened in just the right way. Well, he's you know? a he was already probably conflicted, right? Like he's a religious man. He, you know, I I, I think Jeff Flake in that moment was the right. Uh, vessel for their anger. What do you think? I, I mean, I would say this, and I, I think I wrote something really scorchingly mean about <laughs> Jeff Flake before he called for this um, investigation. So I, I want to be careful um, because I think I think he authentically. I will say this again, sitting in the room watching his face, he was the only person uh, on the Republican side who made eye contact with Dr. Blasey the whole time. Oh wow! He went over and spoke to her. I mean, he clearly. And in fact, I was watching him next to Ben Sass because Ben Sass was supposed to be the other, you know, woke new age guy. And Ben Sass was not woke or new age. He just, you know, was was looking. He as never the, is. No, he no. He gets a lot of credit no, for it, he, he gets, never is. He's kind of faux woke. Yeah. Like, I think he's trying to to be, you know, the, the young hip dad. But I think credit where it's due, I think Flake really was moved. There's a cynical version of this, Hannah, which is he just got caught in an elevator on camera, right? Like that if this had just Mm. happened and it wasn't filmed, this moment might have played out very differently. And I don't quite know what to do with that because I I saw a person struggling and I actually have watched over the weekend as he and Senator Chris Coons have tried to sort of grope their way to some kind of, of sane median position on this. Uh, two men who are very deep friends. I mean, this isn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lindsey Graham screaming about the norms of the Senate. These are two people who have a longstanding and abiding affection for each other and for the Senate trying to grope through. Grope is probably the wrong word. I'll stop saying it. But trying to to get themselves to a place where they can be taken seriously about this, where it doesn't look like posturing. And, and I think that we should credit that in this moment, you know, because I think it's very easy to be the whole thing is broken. I think at least what they're attempting to do is is notable. The very last thing I want to say is I was really struck by Ana Maria Arquila, one of the two women in the elevator, by the words she chose to use. It wasn't anger words. The words were absolutely beautiful. She said this thing that I think we glossed over uh, because it's very not American somehow. She said, quote, the way justice works is you recognize hurt. You take responsibility for it. You begin to repair it. That's not angry words. That is a word that is so like it was like biblical prophet. Yeah. You know That's what I mean? Like, like New Testament. This That's is, New Testament. Or, yeah. I mean, it's like Isaiah. It's it's beautiful, right? She's trying to say something so deep about justice. And for me, You know, I know that that got told as a story about women's fury, but for me, it was also a story about how the way we think about the justice system, we think about criminal justice, we think about crime and punishment and making people pay is such a male construct and such a 21st century construct and that there is this sort of very beautiful you're saying New Testament. I'm saying Old know, Testament. We got the Catholic and the Jew, right? But like, it's, it's funny because there's something so not what was happening in that room that she was tilting at about what we think about justice and justice for women. And maybe it goes back to what Noreen was saying about empathy before. But I just thought it was really the words themselves were extraordinary 
and so unheard of mm-hmm. in the conversation about what a justice is that I just think, like, let's credit it as deeper than just fury. I think it was like a poem. Well, it sounds like truth and reconciliation, which is something people keep tossing around as a possible solution to this moment and just feels logistically kind of complicated. But yeah, when you say those words, it just it does feel like actually what I wanted to see from someone in Judge Kavanaugh's position, which was to sort of like, you know, ask for forgiveness, right? Like for all he's a good Catholic boy, he can't ask for forgiveness. He can't he can't confess his sins. And, and uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I have some tribal anger. At <laughs> I really do. I just think I think it's worth I mean, I totally agree, Hannah, and I think that there's something so fascinating about the fact that outside of that chamber, there was bristling, crackling anger. And I was sitting, my back was like right behind Alyssa Milano, (laughs) and I could see her face the whole time. And I I mean, man, you know, you could see her really unbridled fury, but you didn't, it never seeped into the hearing And then having Rachel Mitchell there sort of in her funny librarian posture in her little chair. You know, she had like the little kindergarten table underneath the dais where all the big men were sort of looming over her. The whole thing was such a performance of like, okay, we're going to hear from the little ladies now. And outside the room, it was crackling. And so I think there's a strange way in which if you just look at that against – The hearings themselves where 200 protesters are like hauled out, mostly women, over the course of a couple of days. The anger wasn't allowed to come in on Thursday, not until Brett Kavanaugh started screaming. And so I think there's a way in which there was like this inside outside thing that was playing out and it came to a head in that elevator. But it wasn't allowed in there for Christine Blasey Ford. I mean, that's the other thing I've been thinking about. There's this thing with sexual assault survivors. I read this sentence um, by someone who analyzed it that they have to be like just sad enough. Like if you're too angry and sad, then you're crazy. But like you also have to have been traumatized. There's no getting up there and saying, no, I didn't build two doors. I wasn't particularly traumatized, but that guy sexually assaulted me. You know, there's like a very like small line of acceptably kind of sad and angry. And Christine Blasey Ford was like, like preposterously pleasant, you know? Um, yeah, like that, that was who, crazy. Who, you know, he was so angry. She could have been just as angry. She could have said this was the worst moment of my life. I can't believe that he hasn't come and said, you know, there's a there's a narrative she could tell that would include a lot of anger. But that wouldn't have gone down. Right. I mean, it just wouldn't have like protesters can be angry, but not her. Well, you know what she did do was she cried. Right. Not a ton, but a, a couple of times she was overwhelmed by emotion and she cried. Um, and. I cried, too. And I think a lot of women and I'm not sure why I cried. Right. Like it was it was just kind of like a response in the moment. And then I read uh, Rebecca Tracer's op-ed in The New York Times in which she sort of goes into the ways that women sort of turn their anger into tears over and over again. And I started going back and thinking in my life. And she cites this instance in her own life where she cried tears of rage at work and and a colleague told her, you know, people mistake that for sadness. And I realized that is what I do when I'm mad at work. I go to the bathroom and I secretly cry, right? Like, I don't like yell at people. I just, I, I cry. And there are all kinds of biological reasons why women, you know, cry more than men. But I just, I hadn't really understood tears in certain circumstances as um, an indication of rage. Do you guys buy that or is it just us 
repressing our rage into something more palatable. Well, I think it might be a cognitive dissonance. It's like I was saying about Brett Kavanaugh. Like it is we we just, you know, you learn way you have ideas about yourself and ideas about how you're allowed to be in public and how you want other people to see you. And screaming is not one of them, mm-hmm. you know, so it goes somewhere else. Like you keep it to yourself and you cry. Like, yeah, the girl crying in the bathroom is the girl who is socially um, not allowed to express and rage. I think I, I, I somehow is stopped from having strong opinions because I am Canadian and my kids always laugh because the madder I am, the harder I smile. And um, one of my friends said, nice Canadianish performance on Lawrence O'Donnell last night because I, the madder I am, the more like ingratiating I am. And I think that that it's 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 my Canadianness. So I'm just going to own that. Um, I, I have to like inject into this, like just remember 1991 and Anita Hill, right? Because we haven't said those two words. But in 1991, you have a woman who was, I mean, unlike Dr. Ford, who was being patronized and coddled and, you know, nobody would even make eye contact and was given a, a safe space to tell her story, but not engaged with in any serious way by the Republican man on that committee. And then think about Anita Hill, who was being compared to the exorcist, who was being told she was a slut, who was openly being disparaged and told over and over again, like, say the word breast again, say the word, tell us what kind of animals were in the porn movies. And think about, you know, as hard as it was for Dr. Blasey Ford to hold in anger, think about how controlled Anita Hill was. And think about in a way, you know, what we've what's changed is not that Anita Hill wasn't allowed to be angry and Dr. Ford wasn't allowed to be angry, but that the Republicans on the committee wouldn't even engage this time, you know, wouldn't even credit her with enough truthfulness to ask their own questions and to look at her. And I think in a way it's weird. It's like we don't want her to be sad. We don't want her to be angry. We don't want her to be anything other than a perfectly credible victim who we will then ignore completely. But don't you think they didn't ask the questions themselves because of optics? Of course. Right. It's not it's like I'm sure they would have actually in some way been happy to engage with her directly and like. But but just they got burned, you know, the the climate. I'm sure that was the conversation behind closed doors. The climate is such that we can't do this. Right. Well, I think. Yeah. It's but also- that I was thinking, like, get over yourselves, like figure out a way to ask a question. Oh, totally. Like totally. That, that's your freaking job. Like, you know, you don't hire somebody else to do your job. Like if you can't figure out how to like, you know, do a little research, like ask people, how do you respectively how do you respectfully? You know, it's like there is there is experience out there in questioning victims on the stand and not being. Being an asshole, you know, it's not that hard. Yeah. The other thing people are saying about Anita Hill versus, you know, not versus, but but um, thinking about her in the context of Christine Bosley Ford is that it was precisely because Christine Bosley Ford seemed nervous and traumatized that the Republicans actually responded to her quite well. Like the the official Republican line seems to be like. We believe her, just not that it was Judge Kavanaugh. You know, we we believe that she was assaulted, that but we don't think it could have been him, which is sort of like not believing her by definition. But she is. I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect victim. But if you were to sort of like go to central casting and say how, you know, like who would Republicans listen to in this situation? It would be a well off um, deferential white blonde woman right who like talking about like her home yeah renovation, renovation. but but you know what yeah. i'm actually going to canadianishly disagree i think i think that 
what they did was they, for two days, took the posture that we, you know, she's very, what was, what was Grassley's word? She's very pleasing. Now, maybe that was oh Orrin Hatch. She was very pleasing. Um, but, you know, took this position that I think I described it as like a sad French film they had seen, you know, like, <laughs> oh, that was sad, but has no bearing on what we're doing here. And I think actually the fact that they <laughs> took this posture of like, oh, no, she was very believable. And then within two days started to say, well, you know, I, I think it, it, it almost like it cabined it just long enough to get through the hearing and then start to discredit her. And if you look at what's happening now and what culminates in Donald Trump, who initially said, by the way, she was, you know, credible and that and that he he felt for her and within four days is standing in Tennessee, you know, screaming at people, like doing impressions of her and the beer and like upstairs, downstairs, and I don't know how I got home. And you just realize, like, I can't credit that they took her seriously or they respected her or found her believable. I think they essentially ignored her. Mm. And I think that it's its own form of erasure to say, oh, you know, we'll give it three days and then we're just going to take the gloves off. I think it's it's far more cowardly than we're saying out loud. And I think the fact that, you know, while you're in the room with her, you pretend that you have solicitude for her pain and then turn around and start trashing her because she likes to fly on planes – uh, no, that's not that's not uh, evolution from 1991. I think better to trash her to her face and let her respond. That was some good Canadian anger. Thank you. That's as angry yeah, as I that get. That's really good. That's a 12. Right. In Toronto, that's a 14. <laughs> they arrest you for stuff like that. Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us. This was exactly the conversation that I dreamed of all seriously. Thank you. <laughs> That's really sad. Hannah, Noreen, thank you so much for having me. And um, we'll talk again under happier, happier circumstances. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, that was a great conversation. Dahlia had to leave us early. So Noreen and I will do the recommendations. Noreen, what do you have this week? So I recently read a strange little book that I want to recommend to everyone. Um, it's called Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, and it's been translated um, from the Japanese. Uh, she's a quite well-known author, I guess, in Japan, and this is her first book that's been translated into English. Um, and it's a, you can read it in about 30 seconds. It's super quick, and it's all about this woman who is just a strange, strange, strange person who has sort of, in a way, opted out of Japanese society. She uh, works her whole life in a convenience store and a job where it's mostly college students cycling in and out. It, you're, she's from a background where it seems like she wouldn't be working in a convenience store. She has no sexual drive whatsoever. And um, you sort of spend the whole novel trying to figure out, is she a sociopath? There are some things that happen that make you think so. Um, but what the novel is really about is uh, the conventionality of Japanese society and the way she is treated when she doesn't have a man or or a job that functions like like a passion project for her. And then the way things shift when something changes in her life and you see just how differently it's received. So it's a it's like a tiny little meditation on, you know, it's particular to Japanese culture, but you can also think about it. And if you're thinking about the way, you know, Americans treat people in relationships or out of relationships differently. Um, it's a weird little novel that has just stayed with me. So Convenience Store Woman. That sounds great. Yeah, I would I would check it out. OK, so you, you have to follow me for a second because otherwise this is going to sound like spinach. So I need to just lead you to why I'm telling you. 
to read this book. So in these moments when I get really fixated, like the Kavanaugh, Blasey Ford are like this question of are women like this and are men like this? And I'm like, is it are we cursed? Like, is that empathy thing that Dahlia was talking about with Elena Kagan? Is that a curse? Like, is that is that a way that, you know, we can never move forward because we're cursed with this empathy thing, whether it's by culture or by biology or whatever the hell it is? And are men just so much better at blocking out other people's perspectives? And that's why they rise to power. Anyway, I get really like like I get crazy about this sometimes. So so the 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 way I get out of it is that I read these books by biologists and primatologists who can remind me that the differences between men and women are barely a standard deviation, uh, and all the kind of like like sexist tropes that uh, taint evolutionary biology. It's not the kind of feminist books I I normally read, but they're I read them like oh like I'm praying like oh I gotta believe this I gotta believe this like it doesn't matter that my son plays with trucks like I gotta believe that this is true <laughs> so so I found a new one it's by this woman Angela Saini S A I N I and it's called How Science Got Women Wrong and um, it's called Inferior Colon How Science Got Women Wrong and uh, she's she's British and she's a science journalist and it's just it's great like it basically reminds you it's like the Tanahasi Coates argument that like you know uh, that 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 you know women were barely allowed into scientific societies until like you know 15 years ago so why is it that there are no Nobel Prize winners except for yesterday there was one so now we're up to three it's not necessarily because women don't have it in them or it's you know they're not naturally geniuses it's because they literally haven't had a chance in a really long time anyway that's how my mind works so if your mind is like mine then go read some of these science books there's three or four of them and if you want to know the other ones you can just tweet me because I have a whole collection in my house. That's such a little interesting insight into your brain, Hannah. I feel like I've learned a lot. <laughs> is it bad? No, like, it's, it, it no, I'm I'm like I'm I'm interested in it. Maybe I'll read a science book. Yeah, I mean it's like the thing is I don't even know that I believe them because I think the wiser thing is to say like yes, there are obviously biological differences between races, between women like the David Reich argument, but we have to you know, but they, but you don't have to turn them into kind of cultural, historical narratives or truths or inequalities. You just have to kind of recognize them, use them for medical purposes, but not turn them into cultural truths. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not there yet as women. I think we're still at the vigilant, like, damn it, there are none days <laughs> of existence. So, um, so I just have to reread the books because I don't totally necessarily believe it. So that's why I have to keep reading them over and over again. Anyway. Okay, right. onwards. Well, that's that is our show for today. Thanks to our producer Danielle Hewitt, our production assistant Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. I can't imagine how much like thoughts and rage and everything there is about the the Kavanaugh hearings and everything that happens. Uh, but please just share with us on Twitter or email, and we'll try and collect it into some coherent thing for our next show. Uh, that is our show for today. For Noreen and Dahlia, I'm Hannah Rosen, and the. Waves will be back next week.